Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Camille White. There may be no population of patients whose health care and outcomes are more affected by racism than those with sickle cell disease. In this episode, we discuss how structural racism, like underfunded research, inadequate care, and misconceptions about sickle cell disease have hindered treatment advancements. We cover a story of how the fragmented healthcare system can cause more harm for sickle cell disease patients. And we highlight Sick Cells, an advocacy organization elevating the voices of the sickle cell community to influence positive change. Welcome back, Distrust and Disparities family. We're here with another episode. September is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, and it's a time to recognize the perseverance of patients living with sickle cell disease and to recommit ourselves to improving the quality of life and the health outcomes for all individuals living with sickle cell disease. I'm going to give a brief overview of sickle cell because research shows that even medical professionals are not given a comprehensive education of the disorder and of the recommended treatment measures for individuals with sickle cell disease. So let's jump right into it because we got a lot to unpack, but I think it's very necessary for individuals who are not in healthcare, just in case you have a family member, a loved one dealing with sickle cell, you can understand the disease. And also for medical professionals, nurses, healthcare providers, doctors, just to get an understanding because this is a rare disorder. And depending on where you're located, you may not interact with a sickle cell patient or you may not interact frequently, but you should have some understanding. And I hope this episode either motivates you to learn more or check out the organization that we'll feature at the end. Sickle cell anemia sometimes called sickle cell disease, is a blood disorder that causes your body to make an unusual form of hemoglobin called hemoglobin S. So a little bit of anatomy, hemoglobin carries oxygen and it is found in the red blood cells. Red blood cells are usually round, but with hemoglobin S, it makes them this C-shape almost like imagine like a crescent moon. So instead of like a round O of a normal red blood cell, you have this C or crescent shape, which is called a sickle. This shape makes the red blood cells stiffer and it prevents them from bending and flexing when moving through your blood vessels. As a result, they can get stuck and block the flow of blood through the blood vessels. And this causes 
an extreme amount of pain, and it can have lasting effects on all your organs. Like red blood cells, they travel through every part of your body from your brain all the way down to your toes. It's vital to carry oxygen. So this sickling of the red blood cells can affect your entire body. Additionally, hemoglobin S also breaks down much faster than um, regular red blood cells, and they also can't carry as much oxygen as um, typical hemoglobin cells. So this means that people with sickle cell anemia have lower oxygen levels and fewer red blood cells, and this can lead to a range of complications. Signs and symptoms of sickle cell disease, they may vary from person to person, and they can range from mild to severe. And there are many factors that impact how severe sickle cell disease may be. Sickle cell symptoms can start around one year of age, though severe sickle cell disease symptoms can start as early as four to six months of age. One of the first signs of sickle cell disease in a baby is swelling of their hands and feet. And many of the complications found in sickle cell disease result from hemolysis, which is the rapid breakdown of red blood cells. And some additional complications of sickle cell disease result from anemia and the stickiness of the red blood cells that block blood flow. Complications can be acute, which they can develop suddenly, or they can be chronic, which means they develop over time. Some of the acute complications include pain crises, which is a vaso-occlusive episodes that basically means parts of the body are not getting enough oxygen, so that causes severe pain. Infections, highly prone to infections, acute chest syndrome, and also stroke. Some chronic complications include anemia, lung disease, pulmonary hypertension, leg ulcers, eye complications, chronic kidney disease, heart disease, liver disease. So as you can see, like I said before, your red blood cells travel throughout your whole body. So a lot of times people just associate sickle cell with just pain, but this is a disorder that affects your entire body. So we'll talk about it later on in the episode, why you need early intervention and a treatment plan in place. And I want to point out sickle cell disease is a genetic condition. It occurs when a child receives two sickle genes, one from each parent. Only one sickle cell gene is present in individuals with sickle cell trait. If both parents have sickle cell trait, there is a 25% chance of having a child with sickle cell disease. And I'm not going to go into all the details because even those individuals with sickle cell trait, some individuals do suffer some symptoms, some mild to severe symptoms with sickle cell anemia. But we want to hopefully bring on an expert and they can go into that detail. There is also a big misconception that sickle cell is just a black disease, which is one of the reasons for the huge disparity gaps, and we'll discuss that. 
I just want to point out the global prevalence of sickle cell disease. Anyone, regardless of race or ethnicity, can inherit hemoglobin mutations causing sickle cell anemia. However, sickle cell anemia um, and sickle cell disease is more common amongst those who have ancestors from sub-Saharan Africa, Central and South America, South Asia, and also the Middle East. These conditions are common in regions that have widespread malaria, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. The sickle cell gene mutation evolved to combat deadly strands of malaria. Research has shown that the sickle cell trait reduces the severity of the malaria symptoms. And I'm going to point out the prevalence in the United States. So the CDC estimates that sickle cell disease affects approximately 100,000 Americans. That breaks down into about 1 in 13 African-American babies are born with sickle cell trait. In contrast, only 1 in 333 white babies are born with sickle cell trait. Sickle cell disease occurs in about one out of every 365 African-American births. Sickle cell disease occurs in about one out of every 16,000 Hispanic American births. And amongst Caucasian births, it's one out of every 100,000 births. And so as you can see, it's more prevalent in African-Americans. And this is where we'll get into the health disparities. So sickle cell disease is one of the most common of the rare blood disorders. However, because it disproportionately affects people from African-American and also Caribbean populations, People with sickle cell disease experience worse health outcomes compared to other diseases and have access to fewer health resources. And the New England Journal of Medicine, they wrote, and I'll quote, there may be no population of patients whose health care and outcomes are more affected by racism than those with sickle cell disease. Although sickle cell disease was first described more than 100 years ago, the development of disease-modifying therapies has been stagnant because of inadequate research funding attributable to, at least in part, to structural racism. In addition to the substantial barriers created by structural racism, the access to and delivery of high-quality health care for patients with sickle cell disease is also disrupted by interpersonal racism. Moving forward, I'm going to, if you hear me say SCD, I'm saying sickle cell disease. Too often, patients with SCD have to simultaneously combat unbearable pain and also deal with racist attitudes expressed by healthcare workers in our hospital. Research shows Black people with sickle cell anemia wait 25% longer than other emergency patients before receiving care. 
Black people are 22% less likely than white people to receive the necessary pain medication, according to research studies. And despite the fact that we know that these patients are in excruciating pain, patients report getting dressed nicely before presenting to the emergency department in an attempt to avoid judgment and to receive better care. 33-year-old Cassandra Trimnell, she is quoted as saying, for many of us, going to the emergency room is a last resort due to the stigma and misunderstanding of the disease. Being dismissed as a drug seeker is unfortunately a rite of passage in our community. I think that is just so crazy. It's so heartbreaking too because And you've even spoken about it as well as like growing up being told like, oh, when you're going to a doctor's appointment, you need to look nice because you need to present yourself in a certain Mm -hmm. way because you're literally going, I hope that someone doesn't automatically be a racist, terrible person and see my skin color and immediately assume a a million things that have nothing to do with anything other than they're racist. They have these terrible stereotypes. And instead of looking at you as just a human being, hearing whatever your symptoms are for why you're there, discussing your history, maybe your family history, they have this Mm -hmm. assumption. And it's so unfortunate where it's like, this is a disease that is like so painful. And people Mm -hmm. are literally like, even though I'm sure they're in pain, because going to an emergency room is a last resort for a lot of individuals. And you're Mm -hmm. like, but let me look nice so they don't judge me. So they don't then, but you're still dealing with like combating people of immediately assuming like, oh, you're in so much pain. What, you want drugs for that? And it's like, yes, that's why Mm -hmm. I'm here. But like, would you, people wouldn't have that same sort of questioning towards a white person that was talking about being in pain. And Given just what you'll talk about, too, with the like opioid crisis, it's just like, look at all the white people that are addicted mm-hmm. to opioids where it's just like, y'all were happy to be writing those like prescriptions left and right. Y'all were giving them out like Tic Tacs because mm-hmm. it was going to white people. Like, mm-hmm. there's a reason why that that is affecting, you know, a broader community than just minorities. There's a reason why. Exactly. There are so many stories of individuals with SCD where they report if they're going through a crisis or an excruciating pain in the middle of the night. Some people, they'll wait to the morning because they don't want to go into the emergency department and just be perceived as, you know, seeking, you know, opioids in the middle of the night. And Mm -hmm. even there's times where they have to prove that they have sickle cell disorder. And also, even if they have a plan of how their pain crisis should be handled, like their doctors write out like how much um, medication that they need, if they need a transfusion based off of like this, so many doctors still don't follow this. Like NIH has guidelines for how to treat sickle cell and they recommend patients have, you know, the doctor that they're seeing, have them sign off on a pain plan and still doctors look at them. They're like, this is a lot of pain medication. And even pain is subjective. And if you're dealing with pain your entire life, some of those same markers of such as like your blood pressure going up, your heart rate being high, they might not have those because they're constantly dealing with pain. Or you may see them like so many times healthcare workers are like, oh, they're sitting on their phone. They don't look like they're in that much pain. But 
they are. Like they need to be, there needs to be education on how to treat and properly triage patients with sickle cell. And like you said, the opioid crisis has complicated things even more with patients with um, sickle cell disease. Patients with SCD are often described as drug seekers and also accused of milking their pain, which results in, like I said, inadequate treatment and suffering longer. And because of the challenges in receiving adequate care and the stress associated with the perceived racial stigma, many patients, they choose to avoid care altogether, which further increases their risk of life-threatening complications. And even some medical professionals, they'll refer to individuals with sickle cell disease or sickle cell um, anemia as sicklers. And the word is laced with racist overtones and it's used ignorantly to describe and depersonalize patients with SCD. And I want to point this out Cystic fibrosis is comparable to sickle cell disease. It's an inherited progressive life-threatening disease associated with decreased quality of life and a shortened lifespan, but it primarily affects white Americans. Cystic fibrosis affects one-third fewer Americans than sickle cell disease, but it receives 7 to 11 times the research funding per patient. This results in, if we look at like the development of medications for cystic fibrosis, the Food and Drug Administration has only approved four medications for SCD versus 15 medications for cystic fibrosis. There's over 120 cystic fibrosis comprehensive care centers. There are literally zero for sickle cell disorder. And with funding from the federal government, there was a study that looked at it from 2008 to 2018. And on average, individuals with cystic fibrosis, they received about 2,800 dollars versus $812 for sickle cell disease. And like I said, there's a fraction of individuals with cystic fibrosis, but it receives so much funding and attention from the government. It's, it's crazy when you look at the two disorders. Yes, it is. Because the fact that you have zero comprehensive care centers zero mm-hmm. yeah, like but i got 120 for a disease that yes deserves attention but mm-hmm. it affects less people and again like you, yeah you look at who is it who is it affecting the demographic of people and you're like oh that's why because i don't care or, and mm-hmm. and then easily with just how healthcare professionals just the rampant racism in a system that was always built to be that way of course, y'all are then dismissing people with pain, telling them that they're milking their pain. Or like you said, like it's the idea that people in that prof- like profession don't understand that if you've always experienced pain, then you sort of know to like 
manage how you exhibit it outwardly. You don't walk mm-hmm. around constantly just hurting or at least showing that you're in like severe pain. You figure out for some, like, how do you navigate throughout your entire day? Because you have to go to school, you have to go to work. Like, yeah, it's, it's just sad. And if they receive the funding for research, there would be many more advances if doctors, like I said, doctors don't even know that much about sickle cell disorder. It, not much is focused on it in school. So there is no real standards of care. I mean, there are standards of care, but doctors aren't following them. There are guidelines and things like that, but they're not following them. Like, And you have to really search for providers that care, that know what they're talking about. And also, there's a disparity in the transition of care from going from pediatrics to an adult. There's been a few studies where they look at like the treatment that you receive as a child, and then it kind of like drops off as you transition to adulthood. And that's when you really need to be able to like manage your symptoms so that you can prevent complications later on in life. It's just really sad. And they are doing like groundbreaking research, but like I said, getting those trials approved and getting more people into those clinical trials, getting the funding for those, it's just like slowly the ball is moving and it's just like, we need to push, we need to advocate. So I'm glad we're talking about it here on the podcast so that um, more attention can be brought to it because it's just that how many disparities just exist within this disorder. And it's very intentional. Have you checked out our website? There you can find all of our episodes and show notes. You can even listen directly on the site and catch up on any previous episode you may have missed. You can read our bios and see what we're up to. Also, we made it even easier to contact us. Just fill out the form on our homepage and click submit. We invite you to recommend guests and topics we should feature. So what are you waiting for? Go check us out at distrustanddisparities.com. We'll segue into our main story. And this week's stories points out the nation's failure to provide even the most basic treatments and preventative care for people with sickle cell. This week's story is about Kyra and Cami Crawford, two sisters from San Antonio, Texas. Dana Jones and her former husband, the girl's father, both carried the mutated hemoglobin gene that causes sickle cell. And both of the girls were born with sickle cell disease. Dana Jones, she raised Kyra and Cammie as a single mother. She worked tirelessly around the clock to care for her daughters Since their birth, she has been their sole caretaker, and she has been chronicling thousands of doctor's visits with notes that she keeps in thick binders. She also tracks the girls' medications, oftentimes sleeping beside them in hospital rooms, and also advocating for them at school and monitoring them on cameras just in case of any seizures at night. 
Their mom states that their sickle cell symptoms began as small infants. She recalls them screaming in agonizing pain. And when Cami was two years old, their mom, she found them a hematologist, Dr. Mahendra Patel. But Ms. Jones states that she was never told by the doctor about the screening test to detect whether her daughters were at risk for strokes. And I want to highlight this information. So in 1998, Dr. Robert Adams, a neurologist, published the results of his study in the New England Journal of Medicine. The paper proved the effectiveness of a scan of the head known as a transcranial Doppler ultrasound to screen for stroke risk. And he recommended blood transfusions for those at higher risk for strokes. The transcranial Doppler ultrasound is a painless test that uses sound waves to see inside the body. The test shows how fast blood moves through the blood vessels in the brain. With this transcranial Doppler ultrasound, the care team is able to identify objects blocking normal flow, such as blood clots, and also they can see any narrowing of the blood vessels. In 2002, the National Institute of Health issued a statement recommending that children with sickle cell get screened every year starting at age two. And like I said in the beginning, Cammie's mom, she took her to the specialist at the age of two. Then in 2014, the National Institute of Health, they issued guidelines repeating that they recommended children get screened every year. Children with sickle cell disease get screened every year to check to make sure they're not at risk for any strokes. So these are preventative guidelines. But however, as we previously discussed, a huge disparity exists in the treatment and standards of care for sickle cell patients. According to Dr. Peter Lane, who is the director of sickle cell disease at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, there's often a gap between the development of improved treatments and delivery of those treatments to the patients who need them. With sickle cell, he said, the gap is even bigger. A big part of the challenge of sickle cell is that it impacts predominantly disadvantaged folks. And Researchers have repeatedly found that many children with the disease do not get the test or do not get it annually as recommended. Another hematologist from the University of Alabama and also the director of the university's adult sickle cell clinic, she reviewed medical records of about 5,000 children at 28 different medical centers, both large and small. And she found on average just 48.5% got the ultrasound. The researchers, they surveyed parents and caregivers, and they learned that some doctors failed to tell the parents about the screening Additionally, some parents, even if they were told about the ultrasound, they did not understand the critical 
importance. And even the doc, the original doctor of the study, he wants to rename the test, the stroke screen rather than the transcranial Doppler. So it can make the purpose even clearer and state how critical it is. And then some medical centers with specialized sickle cell clinics, they failed to consistently follow up with families who missed appointments. So as you can see, there's many cracks in the system, how only less than 50% of the children are getting these recommended screenings on an annual basis. In addition, there are some logistical obstacles. So sometimes medical centers offering the tests were too far from the children's home. Some parents had trouble getting off time from work to take their children for testing. And additionally, some of the centers that did the tests were sometimes out of the family's insurance network, which is crazy. If this is a standard of care. It should be covered by insurance. But as you can see, you have to jump through so many hoops just to get care. And there's so many fragmentations in the system. That's insane that a a test that is so vital and important wouldn't be covered by insurance, where that should automatically be included, just that test in general, but also especially if you have it documented and known that it is for a family member, a dependent, whatever, on a insurance plan that has sickle cell disease. You should be like, oh, that's mm-hmm. automatically in there. That's automatically on whatever. And they can go wherever. But again, like that is, as you said, like our fragmented, just ridiculous whole healthcare system, insurance system, that whole thing of like, you have insurance, but oh, this isn't covered. And then These are a lot of times disadvantaged people where it's just like they don't have the money or the resources to then go elsewhere and get it where it is covered or pay for it out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Like I said, with the fragmentations in care, it's such a sharp contrast from chronic diseases who that predominantly affects white individuals or and also white children, such as type 1 diabetes and cystic fibrosis. With these disorders, children are typically assigned care managers who keep in touch and they help to manage their multiple medical appointments just to help them navigate through the system and just manage, like I said, appointments and making sure they're keeping on track with what they need. And this helps to prevent complications so that they can live longer lives. But also want to point out, in addition to ultrasound, the ultrasound screenings that children should be receiving, they also don't get the recommended medications as well. So hydroxyurea, is a drug that has been around since the 1980s and it reduces the risk of irreversible damage to organs and to the brain. But research shows that it's being critically underused with sickle cell patients. And guidelines from the National Institute of Health say that all children and adolescents should take it, as should adults with three or more crises, pain crises in a year or other serious complications. But surveys show that only about 48% of patients are taking hydroxyurea regularly. And 
Interviews with doctors who did not prescribe the drug revealed that many of the doctors were unfamiliar with the drug and also just sickle cell disorder in general, while others were afraid to prescribe hydroxyurea, um, one, because it's a cancer treatment, but that's at higher doses, but in sickle cell disease is prescribed at lower doses. So it doesn't put you at risk for cancer. So there's a lot of education that providers need to have when caring for sickle cell patients. The children and the patients, they need additional assistance. Like I said, those care managers just to help them navigate through this system. And I just want to highlight this quote, this last quote, a sickle cell specialist, Dr. Michael Dabon from Vanderbilt University. He said, the model of medical care for sickle cell individuals is often reactionary to medical problems. And the burden falls on parents to navigate the nation's complicated, fragmented healthcare system. So now we're going to circle back to Kira and Cammie's story and the importance of the screening that has been around for a very long time. And as Jasmine pointed out, like not even 50% of the children are getting something that is so critical to managing the care and treatment for sickle cell disease. So the two sisters, Kira and Cammie, their mom didn't learn about the critical screening until it was too late. So Kira suffered her first stroke at the age of 10 in 2015. And she had been complaining for weeks of headaches. And one day she was watching a basketball game with her mom and sister. And the pain was so bad that she screamed out in agony. And that was when her mom, Dana, rushed her to the hospital that evening to get help. During her hospital stay... Dana recalls that while she was at her bedside, Kira opened her eyes and that she just basically looked right through me like I wasn't there. So that, of course, alarmed her and she ran into the hall and begged a nurse to come into the room for help. And the nurse called a code blue, which is a life-threatening emergency, and then more medical staff came in to assist with, I guess, bringing Kira back? Because you can describe, Jasmine, what a cold blue is. You've, you know, dealt with many of them as a nurse. Yeah, so she's having a stroke. So basically there is a blockage in her brain. So her brain is not getting enough oxygen. So this is a serious medical emergency because you need oxygen to flow throughout your brain or else that tissue will die. During that emergency, the doctors at the hospital put Kira in a medically induced coma for about a week and a half to allow her brain to heal. And when she awoke, she did look up and say, hi, mommy. And Dana was very relieved that her child was still alive and came out of the coma. But unfortunately, given the stroke and everything that happens and like When you have issues with your brain, like there are so many complications that come along with it. Kira had large gaps in her memory. Her reading level plummeted. She had forgotten how to tell time. And Kira is quoted as saying, I couldn't remember anything like math. I didn't even know what one plus one was. I didn't know how to divide. And again, like she was 10 years old at this point. 
and the stroke, which is a symptom I'm also aware of, and I think a lot of people are, is that she was unable to walk. It affects so many things. So she ended up staying in a hospital for a month working with a physical therapist and progressed from using a walker to wobbly steps on her own. And with determination, she had special tutoring. Kira managed barely to get through fifth grade, but sixth grade defeated her. And unfortunately, she had to repeat it because of you know, the setback she experienced because of her stroke. And then two years later, when Kira was 12, she had her second stroke deep in the middle of the night and her mother heard her like gasping for breath. And Dana reports that she still struggled in school with a learning disability that was so severe. And then this was before COVID forced her to do remote schooling and then she had a tutor who shadowed her and helped her in classes. And she also had two special study periods a day with a teaching assistant standing by to help with schoolwork. But this is like, again, the importance of like, had she known about those screenings that should have been taking place since the age of two, right. like they would have been aware, they would have been maybe prepared. It, it would have been something on their radar and she wouldn't have had all these setbacks and, you know, then developmental educational issues and challenges that she now has to navigate. So both the sisters, they received the majority of their long-term care at Methodist Hospital. In 2019, the medical staff referred Cami and Kira to Dr. Free Jones. And that is where they first learned about the ultrasound tests which is just like, that's a long time off from like, they knew early on that these girls had sickle cell disease. And at their appointment, Dr. Free Jones ordered an MRI scan of the girls' brains to look for stroke damage. And Cammy showed little white spots in her frontal lobe, signs of a silent stroke that had destroyed brain cells. And the results explained why Cammy had trouble with organization She uses every planning tool available to compensate for her losses, including lists and color coding with highlighters. And of course, Kira too had those white spots on her frontal lobes, but she also had big areas toward the back of her brain where tissue had been destroyed by her strokes. And Dana, their mom, was devastated at the first uh, results of the MRI and began to cry during the appointment. And Kira was just shocked and silent. So Dr. Free Jones explained to Kira that this was brain damage that explained why she struggled in school and why at times she was unable to find the words to say what she meant. This is why it's critically important to get those scans starting from the age two because the brain is rapidly developing. And when you have those strokes and like you said, some of the symptoms might be very minute, how Cami they saw like the small white dots, but those basically mean the tissue in that area is is dead. Like that tissue does not grow back. It doesn't be replaced. So this is permanent damage. And like you said, you have to learn ways to adjust, um, new ways to learn, new ways to manage. And depending on like the area of your brain that's affected, like it can affect your balance, your mobility, your memory, your coordination. So it's critically important that 
children get these tests and that doctors are aware of these tests. And if you have a patient with a disorder that's rare, that's not common, that you need to educate yourself on what needs to be done because this has, you know, permanent effects, critical effects. Yeah. These are life altering effects now that they have to deal with where it's like sickle cell disease on its own is Mm -hmm. already so much and so complicated. And we're talking about, you know, the medical aspect of it with medical treatments, prescriptions, things like that. But then on top of it, because they weren't made aware, Dana wasn't aware, and that wasn't prioritized, was having the ultrasound test or the stroke test. Then now they're dealing with the after effects of a stroke. And mm-hmm. not even knowing, too, that, like, Cammie was over here having little silent strokes. Sickle cell disease was always going to stay with them their entire lives. But, like, now so many other things, too, are. Yeah. And they're going to have to just cope with that disease and then the other issues that they're now going to face moving forward. The doctor recommended that both girls receive blood transfusions every three weeks to reduce their stroke risk and other complications and transfusions are a major commitment they're an all-day ordeal the girls have to miss school and their mom has to miss miss work and cami and kira both feel tired and slightly ill after getting one and of course dana is terrified that they will have another sh- stroke and she sleeps with a baby monitor in the girl's room so she can hear if anything goes wrong in the night And additionally, Dana lives with the guilt and pain that if she had been seeing Dr. Free Jones from the start, her daughters would most likely never have had strokes that damaged their brains. And Dana is quoted as saying, I believe that wholeheartedly, if things had been handled differently, their strokes could have been prevented. And their new doctor, Dr. Melissa Free Jones, a pediatric hematologist at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio confirmed that the girls had never gotten the test. And Methodist Hospital, where Dr. Patel practiced, confirmed that it did not offer the test. Which is like, cool. That's insane. But like, how can you call yourself their doctor and be helping them manage a whole disease where a test that you know is recommended throughout the entire country on a yearly basis? For a patient since the age of two years old that they should be getting it, your hospital doesn't offer it and you're not going, hey, we don't offer it here, but here's where you need to go. Here's where you can go. How are you looking at yourself and going, I've provided the best possible care to my patients? Mm -hmm. And he was a hematologist. It's crazy. I'm so upset for Dana and her girls. Just... And Dana, like, of course, feels guilty and angry, but it's like she was doing the best she could do. And Mm -hmm. she thought she had entrusted the health and well-being of her children in the right hands. And unfortunately, it was it was with the wrong person who who did not do what they should have been doing. And she tosses in bed at night thinking, like, what if like. How could the girls' original doctor not have mentioned it? Which is just like, yes, how could they not have mentioned it? And she also said, quote, I took everything he said as the Bible. 
Yeah, you're trusting your children's livelihood in the hands of medical professionals who are supposed to be trained in this specialty and should know what to do. And you're managing two children that are dealing with a rare chronic condition, severe pain, and also other complications. So it could be a matter of both girls could be sick at the same time. One could be sick, um, worrying about who's going to pick the your child up from daycare, managing all this as a single mom, having to take off from work. It's a lot to juggle. And you're doing what you can, taking your child to a specialist to make sure that they get everything that they need. And they're neglecting to tell you about tests that are supposed to be done or where you can go. Because the place where they could go to get the Doppler done was about 45 minutes away. So it's like, had you told them, let them know, they could have gone to have it done. Yeah. Like Dana was doing everything in her power to provide the best care she could for her girl. She would have made that work. She would have, she would have found a way. She would have gotten them both there every single year to get their test. Because now they have, you know... They have brain damage. You can't you can't go back in time and remove that. There is no pill, there is no treatment. You can't fix that. That's permanent. If you are enjoying this episode, you should consider buying us a coffee. Yes, a coffee. That small gesture will help us continue to create quality episodes and content. Click the buy me a coffee link in the show notes or check out our website at distrustanddisparities.com. We'll segue into our organizational feature. You know, we want to talk about an organization that is working to address disparities dealing with sickle cell. And this week's organization is called Sick Cells, and it's a national advocacy nonprofit organization for sickle cell disease. And it originally, it was a documentary project that started in 2008, but Sick Cells grew to much more and eventually became a 501c3 nonprofit in 2017. A lot of the information that I talked about in the overview, I was able to pull from their website and just get a clear, concise understanding of sickle cell. And the mission of Sick Cells is to elevate the voices of the SCD community and the stories of resilience and highlighting the grave disparities in the community that the community faces. They aspire to influence decision makers and propel change. I encourage you guys to go to their website. You can go to our show notes and you can read other people's story of how they are handling living with sickle cell disorder, and also navigating a racist healthcare system. And they have collected lots of stories, and each story is unique, and they come from the perspectives of both patients and caregivers, and just the decisions that they have to make on a daily basis. Other programs that they have as well, they have an ambassador program, and throughout the their community, they develop partnerships 
and just create a space for communication with each other on how to navigate the system. So the Six Cells Ambassador Program is a volunteer network of advocates dedicated to changing the landscape of sickle cell disease. And they want to empower advocates to unite and just spread the awareness of the disease and how we can address these disparities that we talked about. And the program aims to put these conversations at the forefront and have the advocacy program so that they can help change the policies and also advocate for more funding and research and access to just basic standards of care for individuals with sickle cell disease. And sick cells, they want to increase public interest in sickle cell. They want to be able to influence like the public decision-making. And also individuals with sickle cell, like I said, is still a rare blood disorder. So more people need education. They need to understand how it affects individuals with sickle cell disease. And they want to inspire the general public who do not recognize what individuals go through with sickle cell disease, what they have to go to, like their day-to-day. And they just want to drive more research and drug development and just empower those in the community to advocate for themselves, provide them with education on what is going on, what is the new research, um, how they can get access to care, find those specialists in the community. So Six Cells, their website is in our show notes. Please go support them, go follow them, share their posts. You can additionally, you can donate to the organization to help them with their advocacy program and with their education. Um, Also, you can get involved if you have sickle cell or if you have a loved one that suffers from sickle cell, you can provide them with this information. So let's go support this organization that is working to address these gaps and disparities that we have talked about. And I encourage you to, you know, take your time to read more. You know, we provided, uh, we just touched the surface of sickle cell disease and anemia, but I really encourage you to go check out their website to learn more. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at Distrust Pod.